Well, this is Current Yield, ladies and gentlemen, Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. I am Jim Grant, and with me, as always, Eric Whitehead, who is our engineer and uh, man at control panel. He's right there to your left, I think. Uh, the great deputy editor of Grants, Evan Lorenz, and Phil Grant, who edits our indispensable almost daily Grants. And with us today as well is Dylan Grice, who is, I don't know, is the author of Popular Delusions and uh, a man from whom we will be hearing a great deal presently. In the meantime, uh, let's get uh, get some of the housekeeping out of the way. Uh, Eric, I understand that uh, you are off on one of your uh, adventure vacations with the family. I think the destinations include Iran and Northern Italy, do they? Well, yes, each yes. to his own, I suppose. A value investor. Yeah. Well, we are, uh, we here at Grants are doing the best we can in these dire circumstances. For example, like I said dire. I got on the elevator today, this building, Woolworth Building. And we're, we're, by the way, we're almost not supposed to be here. So great is the panic in the city of New York. But I got in the elevator. But before I could press a button, uh, a building guy comes in, leaps into the elevator. He's wearing a mask and gloves. And he says, what floor, sir? Which I think is very nice. And I, I said, 24, which is the correct answer. And he, with a uh, sanitizer, uh, wipes off the elevator controls and then himself presses 24. I, having come from the subway, having do all the things you do on the subway, right? Like hang out of the poles, lick the floor. I was astounded by the, uh, the service we're getting in this building now. But this is, a, I think it's an, it's an example of the pure panic that we see in the, around here. Anyway, that's, that's an editorial comment. Um, or a Keynesian work program. Right, yeah. Uh, so Dylan, welcome to Grant's uh, Current Yield. Thank you, thanks very much. Yeah. So Dylan, uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen, you'll presently uh, be able to conjecture that he was not born in, uh, in Bayonne, New Jersey, or in Atlanta. Or Dylan was uh, originally from Glasgow, uh, Scotland, and um, he was for a long time was the uh, the top rated sell side strategist uh, for Sockgen in I think that's the entire continent, not only of Europe but the entire continent of the world. I think is what Sockgen covers. <laughs> and he is the founder of Calderwood Capital, and he writes a very f- fabulous piece, think piece, uh, investment essay, uh, cum newsletter called I don't know, called Popular Delusions. And, uh, and But I, I have omitted so far the foremost credential of Dylan Grice, which that is he's a speaker at the Grants Fall Conference. Um, we had, you know, for years and years, we had had a spring conference too. E- uh, Evan, did we schedule a spring conference for this year? No, uh, the best financial decision of the year, I think. Yeah, we just we just knew, Dylan, we just knew we should not have a spring conference this year, so we're not having one. But, but Dylan would be with us in the fall. I see... Oh, I see. here's an interesting thing, fellas. I, I'm looking now at the new issue of Grants. So we see it, we have the fall conference. We list the speakers, but you know what we don't list? The date. Isn't that a kick? What's the date, Eric? October 20th. He speaks. <laughs> All right. So, Dill, I have been um, looking through the uh, latest issue of, of Popular Delusions, and I see so much to ask you about. I'm, I'm going to begin with this. You had a very prescient call on credit, that is to say on uh, promise to pay money. And uh, it has done everything that you prophesized. What now? What is the state of credit? Uh, so let's narrow it down to corporate credit. Uh, what are the risks? What are the opportunities? <laughs> well, well, firstly, it's very generous of you to say that I prophesized this, and overly generous, actually, because I, 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 I really didn't. Well, I, I, I didn't. I didn't predict the virus, and and therefore cancel the spring <laughs> conference either. What, what the heck, Dan? <laughs> well, I think. The, it was very clear that the, the um, you know the, the spreads were incredibly tight. So back in January, we we, we kind of observed that the, the spreads, particularly for the for the higher quality names, were um, trading inside their um, 2007 tights. 
and um, you know, with with the help of one of the, the managers that we're invested in, um, um, we we thought we had quite a neat way of actually betting yes. against those um, those credit types. And I think that you know the you know the, the credit market today is not the same as it was in 2007. Obviously, there are a number of differences. Some of them make defaults less likely. Some of them maybe make defaults more likely. Uh, but I think that uh, it, it seemed as though people were offering credit without really asking too many questions and um, uh, you know and since then the um, spreads have obviously have, have blown blown out um, quite quite spectacularly actually um, and pretty much everything from the the, um, the high grades to the, to the low grade to, to the emerging markets so so that's been I suppose that you know that 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 was quite a good um, that was quite a good call. Um, what happens next is probably um, what people are more interested in. You know, I <laughs> frankly I, I don't know. Um, I think one of the things that is a is a concern. I mean, the market is now shut, and I think the riskier is the um, uh, the, the downgrades uh, that you're likely to see um, from. Probably, I mean, in the loan market, you had an awful lot of, I think, a, a, a record percentage of of, um, uh, of loans which were um, uh, B minus, and you know they're going to tip in, and and that means that you know no one's really going to be able to buy them. So those issuers are probably going to be bust. They're not going to be able to refinance. They're not going to be able to um, get new credit. You know, they're in trouble basically. So I think that that's probably the next leg. Um, uh, Dylan. For what, for what it's worth. Yeah. In 2009, the uh, high-yield default rate hit an all-time high, and in 2010, it fell below its uh, long-term average. Uh, Marty Fritzen, who's one of the deans of the high-yield world, says that's physically impossible, but it did happen. And the reason it happened, he told us, was um, you know the central banks of the world came together, and they flooded the market with so much money that companies were able to refinance and kind of continue on for a longer day. As you look at the market today, we're seeing a, a return of a lot of these crisis-era facilities, like uh, acronyms like PDCF or CP, Commercial Paper Funding Facility, CPFF. Do you think central banks are going to be able to pull the same hat trick by just completely completely inundating the markets with money? Or is that kind of a one-time thing where it worked once, but corporate balance sheets are stretched now, or for whatever reason, it won't work? Well, I think, I mean, I, I, I would add that, you know, there's, there's, you know the, the market did go effectively ex-government um, a few years ago now, really. So, and and this was taken, and, uh, you know, and, and you guys wrote about it, and uh, this was taken as a sign of just how frothy the market was, and how people were not asking, any, again, were not asking questions. But the kind of flip side is that it's, there are less things to breach. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, there's, there's less kind of pressure to to, to default, maybe. Um, so you know, I I, I think. I, I, I also don't think that the central banks are any less inclined to do what they did um, in 2008-2009. And I think you've already seen, I mean, you know, apart from just the actual credit markets, you're, you're you know, you're clearly seeing. I think this is the we're seeing the, the early examples of of, the, of monetary policy 2.0 or 3.0 if QE was 2.0. Then I guess just you know kind of putting checks in the mail to everyone is, is 3.0. And I think we're starting to see that. We've already seen it in Hong Kong. Uh, um, uh, we've seen something similar in the UK announced yesterday. Um, so in terms of flooding the, the economy with liquidity and um, to try and prop things up, you know, that's clearly the, the strategy here. And um, so yeah, I, it wouldn't surprise me if you saw some kind of rerun. So yeah, that would that would be my kind of answer. I mean, the, the point I was getting at really is just the, the CLO machine is just so kind of important. The CLO machine is such an important part of the credit system now. Um, and I think as a lot of these, these, you know, most CLO managers can't really buy uh, the triple C loans. And so as a lot of these credits get um, tipped into the, the, the lowest rating, the finance just isn't going to be there. So it's not necessarily about the, you know, whether or not you breach 
Scottish Covenant. It's just there's no money left. You can't get any money. So I think that's probably that's the thing that, that, that you know. I think that's probably the next shoe to drop here. Hey, uh, uh, Dylan. Uh, uh, last year, uh, I think an English author, author of uh, Francis Coppola, produced a book called uh, "The Case mm-hmm. for People's Quantitative Easing." And yeah. uh, I, I was thinking about this in uh, in the light of uh, this, uh, you know, one proposed bailout after another. I don't doubt that the airline business and the hotel business are in the bar business, the uh, restaurant industry, are in dire straits. But what is the moral case for denying the direct infusion of money into people's wallets as distinct from the indirect infusion of uh, uh, central bank credit into the commercial system via primary bond dealers? What uh, is, is, isn't people's QE almost uh, a certain thing now? Yeah, well, I, I, yeah, I think it is. Uh, well, I mean, let's, let's, uh, okay, if that's the case, let me ask you a follow-up question. Namely, in, I think one of your very first issues of Popular Delusions um, had to do with interest rates and with the bond market and with your contention that uh, it's a big opportunity in the idea of inflation, the concept, the thing, which of course is the uh, the mirror image of everyone's concern now, which is deflate. Could you uh, update your views on inflation and interest rates? Or is, is, is the world looking the wrong way? Um, well, I, I so I mean that's quite a big question. I, I think uh, you know I started out. I mean, ten years ago, I, I was kind of I was digging out some of the things that I was writing. You know, some of the ideas I had um, some time ago. And, and and ten years ago, I made made a very firm prediction um, that. Uh, inflation. I, I said inflation would would be the, the defining issue of, of of the next stage of my career. Um, I said that um, we were we were sleepwalking into a, uh, an inflation crisis, and by inflation I meant CPI inflation. Uh, so I wasn't talking about asset prices. I was very specifically talking about high street inflation, inflation of of, um, of the CPI. And I said that this would be a problem within ten years. And and I and, and I I said that you would start to see the early signs of, you know, uh, an incipient inflation problem. So, you know, something like four to five percent. So now, of course, we, we haven't got four to five. This is just 10 years ago, I was saying that. And, uh, and you know, that was wrong. That was clearly completely wrong. I got it completely wrong. And I thought that the, the monetization of fiscal deficit eventually would feed us. It would take some time, but eventually it would feed into the CPI. And clearly that hasn't happened. Inflation is about 50 basis points lower. Break-evens are about 50 basis points lower. So there was some kind of soul-searching for me on, on, on what I got wrong. And uh, and I think that the mainly there, there were a few things. Um, but uh, I, I think that the two main things were the, the very profound impact of technology, and you can see this very clearly, the effect of the internet on um, on a whole bunch of different price indices. But the best place is if you look if you look at the CPI index for books, um, uh, the collapse in books prices, which coincides with um, with Amazon in the late 90s, um, is um, is actually quite staggering. And I think you can probably take you, you're probably seeing a CPI about 50 basis points lower just because of um, the moves. To online sales, so that's something that I kind of missed. But I think the bigger thing that I missed was that, and which I should have known, economies are deflationary, right? You know, they, 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 it's, the, it's part of the human condition to, to do more with less. So if you just don't do much to an economy, then it will 
be deflationary. It's a, it's a kind of deflation machine, really. That's the natural state of things. Well, well, so, Dalen, uh, j- just to play a, a little bit of devil's advocate here, um, we've had negative restaurant traffic in the U.S. for probably about five or six years now, but we keep expanding restaurant counts in large part because um, money's been so cheap. And we've seen this across a lot of industries where we keep adding capacity or capacity for inefficient firms never gets taken out because they're able to kind of keep refinancing loans even if they're barely able to yeah. service them. So it does seem like yeah. part of it might be just increase in productivity, but also part of it, easy money. And there's been studies from the IMF and other uh, institutions also propels deflation because it keeps alive inefficient yeah. firms and capacity that would otherwise go towards a, a more yeah. efficient uses. Yeah, I, listen, I, I, I completely agree with that. You know, absolutely agree with that as well. This kind of idea that, you know, you're, you're effectively short-circuiting the kind of the failure part of, of capitalism. And so you, you have more zombie um, firms and more zombie institutions and less, you know, you know, you actually have more capacity than you should do, um, and that can also kind of be deflationary. Um, I think one of the things that, I, I, you know, I, I kind of wasn't really around in the 70s, but I, I read, I've been reading a lot about it, and um, actually there's been some fascinating political biographies, the, the, the new, um, well, it's not so new now, but the, the biography of Thatcher, the authorised biography of Margaret Thatcher is really, really fascinating. And the kind of world that she kind of was a reaction against, it's incredible how much we've forgotten about how involved the state was and pretty much every single decision that was made. You know, there were there were incomes policies and pricing policies. Um, the, the, the Chancellor of the Exchequer set interest rates and interest rate policies and money supply policies. And of course, when the Chancellor is, so that would have been the Finance Minister, um, in the UK it's called the Chancellor, when they're setting interest rates and when they're setting monetary policy, they're not, they're not doing so because they're necessarily thinking about the economy. They're, they're doing so because they're thinking about the next election. So the whole calculus behind, you know, the credit conditions was, was completely lopsided back in the, in the and you had huge nationalisation, ma- massive state monopolies, massive trade unions involved in wage bargaining. So, in some way, it was just a very, very, in fact, nearly every way, it was a very, very different uh, economy. Certainly, the UK was just a very, very socialist country. The only, so Dylan, there's, a, there's, a, there's this uh, notion of modern monetary theory. Uh, uh, first uh, described, I think, uh, or certainly the foremost uh, proponent was a fellow named Abel Lerner, who wrote during the uh, 1930s and 40s and 50s. And uh, he said that uh, uh, what uh, an enlightened and progressive government should do is to uh, issue debt and uh, print money until such time as the CPI, not the Dow Jones Industrial Average, the CPI rises. And when or if that happens, it should levy taxes to neutralize that inflation. So isn't that the state of affairs today? So uh, uh, Donald Trump, uh, Boris Johnson um, are acting as if they themselves were uh, kind of in the new socialist vanguard, right? Uh, new Chancellor of the Exchequer in Britain has this, uh, this budget that uh, is a pure Blairite, pure labor, new labor, right? It's spend, spend, spend. Government's going to help innovation in this country. America, uh, we're going to uh, send $1,000 to everybody. Now, interest rates, the lowest they've been in uh, 4,000 years, and governments are more open-handed than they have been, arguably, in uh, anyone's lifetime. So our sovereign bond yields of about nothing, are they correctly priced? <laughs> I mean, I personally don't. No, they're not. I think very clearly they're not. I think it's a very, very simple rule of thumb uh, that you know nominal yields should roughly equal nominal GDP growth, roughly speaking. Um, that's a, you know historically that's been the case. Uh, it's a very, very good empirical 
uh, observation. Pretty much over a long enough period of time, so pretty much any economy, you'll find that nominal GDP growth and nominal bond yields are, are, are roughly the same. So, you know, nominal GDP growth is kind of roughly, you know, depending on Europe or America, you're talking about 3 to 4%. That's kind of where yields should be, you know, they shouldn't be close to zero and they certainly shouldn't be negative. So I think that's a very, very simple. There's absolutely no way that bond yields make sense. But they make, of course, there's a rationality to them. But, they, you know, it's, it's, it's a crazy, I mean, it's crazy land for, for sure. Well, what do you see to do in the markets now, Dylan? You, you are one for separating babies in bathwater. You have made calls, uh, bullish calls on energy and uh, frontier markets and all these things are going through, as, uh, as our friend, um, our colleague, Evan Lorenz says, through the wood chipper, that's his phrase. So uh, do you see uh, uh, babies amidst this flood of bathwater? What can you tell the listeners of growth? Well, yeah, so, so listen, I think, uh, you know, if you, um, in market environments like this, you know, it's a, it's a cliche, but it's very true. Correlations go to one. And so it, I think almost right now, I think it just doesn't really matter what you, you buy. Yes, I've absolutely found some fascinating investment opportunities in, in, in frontier markets. Like what? Tobacco companies. Well, the one that, um, that we spoke about was, um, was Bangladesh, um, which is, uh, you know, which is trading actually in about um, uh, 14 times earnings at the moment. It's the kind of... Um, uh, Local um, uh, tobacco monopoly. Well, Eric's uh, going to check uh, that when he when he when he goes. Is, is Bangladesh on your itinerary? Next time. <laughs> <laughs> what, what else you got, Dylan? Besides, besides tobacco, the Bangla- tobacco Bangladesh company, your cigarettes. Tobacco box. companies have been like the standout, you know, kind of textbook um, stock market performance over the last century, and there's very very good reason for that, yeah. right? And so you look at the tobacco companies today, and you think, well, you know, it would have been good to invest in those thirty or forty or fifty years ago, but I probably missed the boat now. Well, actually, you haven't missed the boat in some of these kind of frontier markets. You know, um, the populations are still growing, the number of smokers are still still growing. Uh, except, you, know, you might be squeamish about buying tobacco companies. No, 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 that's fine. Different issues. <laughs> so you know, so that was, that's kind of one example. <laughs> <laughs> no, believe us, that's I not mean, an issue what, at all. What, what, but what I was going to say was that, you know, I, I've talked about oil services, I've talked about uranium. None of those things are holding up as well as the short credit um, but the, um, I think the reality is when, when correlation, when, when you're in markets like this, correlation is so high, I think it doesn't really matter what you buy. I really think that um, uh, you can kind of buy it, virtually any risky investment. You know, so, some of my readers, uh, some of my kind of um, colleagues are equity guys. Some of them are fixed income credit guys. Some of them are current um, people. It kind of, I, I think it doesn't really matter what your domain is. I think, you know, regardless of what your domain is, you know what the riskier stuff is. And I think that in an environment like this, frankly, you should be buying that risk stuff. Um, so I do you think that, we've reached a, a bottom or a bottoming process and now's a good time to start putting on risk again? I don't, listen, I, I, I don't know. Um, and I think that you just, you can get yourself um, into, you know, you can get yourself into all sorts of problems. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, you can. I think that um, from my perspective, you know, the starting point is you don't know where the bottom is, um, but you do know some things. You do know what your, what, what your required return is. You do know what your balance sheet is. <laughs> And you do know what panic looks like. And every week, you know, the, the, the last couple of days, we've seen dislocations everywhere. We've seen VIX levels. We, I think we've only seen three times in, um, in history. This is only the third time we've been up here with, with volatility. 
uh, we're seeing correlation, CBOE correlation at, at, at record highs. We're seeing um, ETF, even to liquid investment-grade credit, suddenly trade at rec discounts. Evan, before we came live, Evan was talking about the, the market structure. Evan, why don't you... Why don't you yeah, uh, one of the, the things I, uh, I thought was different from uh, the 2007 through 2009 crisis is I think the market structure kind of exacerbates volatility. The biggest inflows the market the last decade have actually been into passive funds, which buy everything at the same time. And when people sell, they sell everything at the same time. Um, prior to the crisis, banks, you know, acted as market makers in the market, and they also had prop desks, and they kind of acted as a little bit of a counter-cyclical hedge, but because of Dodd-Frank, they've been pushed out. A lot of the new market makers and the designated participants for ETFs are now high-frequency traders like Citadel or Virtu. And the thing is, they look at their bottom line, and when volatility spikes up, they just get out of the market. We also have a couple other strategies that are implicitly short volatility, whether that's risk parity or uh, any number of other things that Grants has written about for years. And when volatility spikes, they have to cut exposure. So we have all these yeah. things that as soon as volatility spikes, there's all these things that kind of exacerbate the volatility and kind of make the sell-offs worse. Yeah, and, and as absolutely. much as last no, year, I, the, the buying was, I, you know... I, no, I, listen, I totally agree. As I, I, I said, you, you, there are, you can pretty much any market you look at, you will see dislocations right now. And, you know, I was just before I came on, I was looking at one of the oil services companies that, that, um, that I had a look at last year. It was now trading on, trading on a negative enterprise value. In other words, a discount to the cash on its balance sheet. And so, you know, you, you are seeing these meaningful dislocations. And again, I, I don't know if this is the bottom, but I, I do know what panic looks like. And this is panic. And I think that you should be taking the other side. I think you, so you should be buying this panic. So I said, if you're a credit guy, you know, you know what credits to buy. And I think if you're an equity investor, you know what equity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I, last week we were actually buying um, uh, stuff. We bought some stock and we even bought some cryptocurrency, believe it or not, after the big puke. Um, that, you know, I, I, I think that if we get another leg down, then, you know, our, our intention is to be, to be buying again. Well, thank you, Dylan. Now, this reminds me of our sponsor, Grant's Interest Rate Observer. And it ill behooves the proprietor and the editor, I suppose, to talk his book, but uh, that's the nature of advertising. So uh, I want you to subscribe to Grant's. You should. And the reason you should is because uh, uh, every interesting person in Wall Street and indeed on Wall Street's worldwide reads Grant's. That's my reading. Not everyone reads it. We are a somewhat intimate family, but all the interesting people do. Why? Because uh, they like the way we operate. They like that uh, we uh, look ahead, uh, informed by what has happened in the past. Uh, you're probably wondering about that. We are value-minded, and uh, the price of grants, if that you're curious, yeah, we charged $1,295 a year for 24 issues. Now, Eric, I have reason to know, I have reason to know that uh, $1,295 is cheaper than a large bottle of Purell. So what is going to keep you safe in finance? A, a, a bottle of Purell or a Grants? Grants. Yeah. So ladies and gentlemen, please do subscribe. Uh, we are, are, I think people are standing by, are they not, Eric, to take the order? Yes. Yeah. And um, uh, so we will welcome you as, uh, as uh, fully paid up subscribers. That's, that's a, a distinction uh, to which anyone may aspire and anyone may achieve. Just send us the money. So thank you for subscribing. Um, is it not possible, Dylan, that um, uh, a shutdown in world commerce indicates uh, not short-lived uh, kind of four or eight alarm fire worth of panic, but rather it augurs something much more prolonged and perhaps deeper and more serious? Why uh, should we not uh, at least consider that this is only the beginning and not an opportunity to get long? Yeah. 
I, I again, I, I, you know, as I said a minute ago, you know, you 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 know what your balance sheet is. Yeah. You know what your expected return is. So I'm not saying go all in. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, okay. again, I'm not saying anything. Actually, I'm just I, I tell you what I'm doing. Yeah. Right? I'm not going all in. I'm not borrowing up to the eyeballs so that I can fill <laughs> my boots and stuff. <laughs> and I'm not buying anything lever at all. So anything I buy will survive. Yeah. The stuff we own is so, absolutely going to survive. Hey, Dylan. Um, uh, so. And, is, is, and, so- and, there is still, I still have um, capacity to, to to deploy fund. Yeah. You know, as things get get much worse, right. um, the, the, the money is there. So that's 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 all I was saying, really. So, uh, popular delusions is uh, the part of the phrase that uh, also contains the phrase in the madness of crowds. Now, you you yes. are, are living in Switzerland, no? Is that yes? Yes. Yes. That's okay. Right. Tell us about the Swiss reaction to the pandemic. What's daily life like? I, here in New York City, it seems, I don't know, it seems to me at least, I think Evan and Eric and Phil might disagree. It seems to me everyone's gone crazy. What the stolid, sensible, plain shoes Swiss? Are they running around with well, masks on? What, what's, what's the story? Well, it's difficult to say. I don't, know, I don't know how well you know. We've been in Switzerland now for, I think, six or seven years, and we absolutely love the place. But uh, if you go through Zurich most evenings, it's just incredibly quiet. So it doesn't feel any different. It's still incredibly quiet. <laughs> but well, they have actually gone into lockdown, I think, yesterday. So we, we, the, the whole country is now in complete lockdown. Um, so no uh, public gatherings, no private gatherings. Um, you're not supposed to go jogging with a jogging partner. Um, you're not um, supposed to be uh, in a group of people outside. The, uh, the very rational Swiss, have been very rationally stockpiling, so the, um, the shelves and the grocery stores are empty. Um, you're, you know, it looks pretty much the same as as, as everywhere else, to be honest. Well, Dylan, I I think the uh, the expected uh, salutation and uh, uh, and uh, I don't know social uh, greetings of all kinds is stay safe, which I don't know. I can't. Stay safe. Well, yeah. So. Um, I'm 73 years old. I get out of bed in the morning. I figure it's 50-50. Any day. Pandemic, no pandemic. <laughs> so I'm going to stay safe, but uh, I'm just not. Anyway, thank you for being with us, Dylan. We will see you. What's the date of the conference again, Eric? Is it uh, October? October 20th. 20th. October 20th, October 20th. 2020. By that time, we have advance word that everything will be back on. You'll be able to jog, jog with friends. And in your case, I know, Dylan, we didn't get a chance to get into it, but you like to go, you like to go running at one degree Fahrenheit with shorts. That's all. And sneakers sometimes. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a personal thing. Um, but we will, we, we will see you in the fall. And ladies and gentlemen, you too are welcome at this fabulous fall grants conference, which will not be canceled no matter what happens. All right. So... Okay, so on behalf of all of us, the grants, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening and be safe. <laughs>